Hello and welcome to BWB Extra, our new weekly follow-up feature to each of our guests' main episodes. And it's where we hand over the reins to our guests to let them lead the conversation with their biggest bugbear, most burning business question, or even just a topic of their choice to discuss with us. The choice is theirs. And this week, we continue our conversation with William Laurie, co-founder and director of Dubai-based art gallery Laurie Shabibi, who talks about the UAE's socio-economic changes over the last 15 years, which ultimately gave rise to the creation of the Middle Eastern art scene and culture. We discuss the fundamental differences between the UAE, past and present, how it affected the region's emerging market economy, as well as hear William demystify the intricate socio-geographical relationships between the states that make up the UAE. Welcome to Creating Cultures. So let's talk about the art and cultural scene in Dubai and how it's changing. Because... I haven't been to Dubai for 15 years, but it never felt that organic. I always felt I was living sort of artificial land. Like an airport, it was described yeah, to me. Yeah, exactly. Very it's like airport-y. Airport. So, you know, you want a sort of art scene to grow up in like, you know, the back streets of Rio or something like that, not in an airport. So tell me where I'm wrong. Well, I think if you were there 15 years ago, your experience would probably be like, five-star hotels and shopping malls. It was, the other choice was either that or it was like really sort of slumming it. There was really nothing in between. I don't, I was, wasn't even aware that there was a slum. There must be because there's, yeah, there's a whole underbelly to it. Um, but and I, I think, I never even saw it. Yeah. And so like 15 years ago, that was the experience. I mean, there wasn't, there weren't really areas so much that you could kind of go to or walk around. All of that had to kind of grow um, in terms of it being organic. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah. You're just in the car the whole time. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the place was also about 15 years ago. I think it's fair to say it had like 20% of the world's cranes, I think was the st wow. statistic. It went from something like about a million people back in 2005 to something like three and a half million people today. So it's a much bigger city. And all of those gaps between the five star and the slumming it, those have kind of been filled in the last 15 years. And it's happened very, very quickly. So um, there is loads of different experiences that you could have somewhere between the sort of luxury and the super budget. And in terms of like an area, the place where we are, um, we chose, when we were looking at areas to open a gallery, um, we were looking at um, a place called DIFC, Dubai International Financial Center, um, which is where, you know, the different sort of banks and accountants and law firms, the international ones have their offices and thinking of having a place there. But the rents were high. The spaces were quite sort of like retail, which means you couldn't really have experimental artwork there at all. And the other place that we actually ended up opening in was a an industrial district, which usually in most cities would be on the outside of the town, but because the city grew so quickly, it had to actually grow around it. So this industrial district actually has become the kind of geographical center of the city by default. Mm -hmm. It never got knocked down. The spaces there are warehouses with like 10 meter ceilings, big spaces. So the rents were cheap. It felt very kind of rough around the edges, but there are also a few galleries there. So when we opened, I think we were like the third or the fourth one in. And very quickly, there were six. 
And suddenly the place became a bit of a hub. And not just a hub for galleries, but also because we were the, like the first places that people would go to in this industrial zone, it kind of brought people out of this five-star lifestyle. And there was something kind of exciting and edgy about it. And very, very quickly, and I mean, everything there was accelerated. The place, to some extent, got a bit gentrified. You also got more creatives kind of springing up around there and people sort of seeing it for the opportunity it was as a place you could actually walk around and you could have some sort of like outdoor urban lifestyle. With the galleries there, all of this kind of came quite quickly within the space of a few years afterwards. I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding about the Middle East. I mean, I tap you up regularly to help me get my brain around it. There's misunderstanding about Islam, about Arabs, the Middle East. I mean, the West has just generally stared at it as kind of like, that's where the oil and the desert is, isn't it? Kind of thing. Meanwhile, Islamic art seems to have an incredibly deep and probably more, you know, in a way has more going for it than British art, which is frankly pretty dull, a lot of it. And, you know, until recently, we suddenly got good at it recently, maybe. And then I wonder also like, okay, so art, did we sort of frown upon Islamic art? We frowned upon, or frowned or looked look down and misunderstood it. And then is it that sort of Dubai is trying to sort of become, we're the gateway to this place? Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is that like, at least sort of culturally to have a kind of sense of a place being a cultural destination, it has to have a kind of raison d'etre, right? And um, in Dubai, it's not just Dubai because there's actually three main cities in the UAE. There's seven different emirates, but sort of three main cities. So there's Dubai and Abu Dhabi, which is actually the capital, and Sharjah. And they're in three separate emirates. And um, at least within the cultural scene, they've, they've each taken a different role. So you have... Uh, now you have the Louvre in Abu Dhabi and the Guggenheim eventually will open there. And in Sharjah, you have a thing called the Sharjah Art Foundation. And you've actually had museums there since like the 80s and the 90s. Dubai, on the other hand, has been very much the kind of commercial art scene. Mm. Um, so between these three, and there's, you know, overlaps between, you know, all of the different people within the scene, you've got quite a few different things covered but something that has happened within the UAE, and I'll call that the UAE art scene rather than just the Dubai art scene, is that it's it's become a kind of go-to place for people to see not just art from the Middle East or North Africa, but also from India, from Africa, a kind of place where like art from what's sometimes called the Global South has its space. The Global South is what? The kind of Global South, and it's worth having a look at this, is basically everything which is not like G7 plus at Friends. Right. Okay. Yeah. In the Middle East, you know, when you when I talk to you, it's not just like within countries, you know, I mean, you've got such different cultures really, but we're in that sort of ignorant state that we still sort of chuck it all together really, you know, whether it be from, yeah. I mean, they're all completely different, are they? Or you Yeah, know? I mean, it's a, it's a huge area. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, even like linguistically within the Arab countries, um, their dialects are so different, they might not necessarily be understood by someone from North Africa to someone who's like in Lebanon, for example. Okay, they'd find it hard. And do they all have an okay relationship with the UAE if it's coming out of the ground as a sort of hub? In a well, way? I mean, it's really complicated, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's rivalries too. Um, and there's rivalries and friendships and frenemies going on here. Yeah, yeah. And shifting sort of alliances. But the UAE has 
become a place which is quite international and yeah. people don't mind sort of necessarily traveling to, even though they wished it they didn't have to. Could you see a Europe, a, a type of Europe eventually happening in that area? Or do you think that's oh, What do you happen? mean, like an EU? Yeah, well, the they, EU of the Middle East, you know, they all get together and start being, you know, chummy and all well, that. Well, they have something called the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, for right. all of the countries on the Arabian Peninsula except Yemen. Right, okay. Um, but, you know, sometimes they get on and sometimes not so well. But that's usually, that was the basis of Europe, isn't it? Trying to say, well, look, guys, we all keep squabbling. Let's all just, you know, get on with it sort of thing. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. At Ori Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients. And if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts? Dominic Frisby sat down with Andy Ori and James Pleece to talk about tax reliefs. Right, so R&D stands for Research and Development. The scheme is the government's way of supporting companies which are engaged in certain activities they really want to encourage. It's one of the most generous schemes around. Uh, there's technically two schemes, but they operate in fundamentally the same way. Uh, each one gives you a certain portion of your costs you spend on qualifying activities back. Back in cash. Yes, back in cash. That's important to note. In your bank account. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Surprisingly. You can find our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Ori Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or to follow us on Spotify so that you never miss an episode. Now, back to the chat. Do you think working in emerging markets generally has changed? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, in the noughties, so that's from 2000 to 2010, I think in a way there was such a thing as emerging markets. When I think of the changes that happened between 2000 and even 2005, 2006, I think they were enormous and unprecedented in terms of, you know, within our lifetimes, globalization. So to give like a, for example, Iran, I went to first in 2001 and I went there with three friends and each of us took $500 US dollars. When we changed our money, we got a sack full of local notes back, like in bricks. It looked like we'd robbed a bank and we had difficulty spending it over a month because the currency was worth so little compared to Western currencies and because there was almost no infiltration of Western brands. I mean, everyone was driving cars, which were either sort of pre-revolution, so 1970s American cars, or imported from Soviet and Eastern Bloc countries. This like was like, yeah, I was going to say, it's yeah. just like Cuba, isn't yeah. it? We went back in 2006, everything was at least 10 times as expensive in sort of dollar terms. And by that stage, I think... Um, this is Iran? Yes, BMW and Japanese like car companies were building things under license there. Same sort of thing I found in places like India, 
between the 90s and the mid 2000s. I think India's a great example because it's like they, I was being with an Indian in a shopping and they'd look at the clothes and they'd look at the stitching and they'd work out. And now they've gone to what we've started doing, which or we, we do, which is we look at the brand and we go, right. oh, well, it must be good. It's made by X. And half the time, it ain't if yeah. you look at the quality of it being yeah. made. We lose our ability to judge so we don't buy things at fair value. We buy them for brand value. I'll tell you how you notice how India's changed is when you go to the cricket and you watch all the young Indian fans, and in a lot of cases, they've got more money than the uh, English fans, right. yeah. and and they get absolutely hammered uh, in a way, you know. And it's like, wow, it's this is you know a bunch of young kids. Yeah, yeah. Back to the emerging markets as well. Um, I think back then, if anyone had like an idea which had half sort of shred of sense, people would chuck money at it and sort of get behind it. And I think that was definitely what I saw in Dubai at that particular point. There were a lot of people who were made like very wealthy very quickly by having an idea which was slightly less harebrained than the next. Right. And I mean, like definitely I sort of benefited from that by being able to present this idea of doing an auction from scratch in Dubai in the mid-2000s. Yeah. I think these days companies would be a bit more circumspect about it, especially about their expenses. Yeah, it was a lot of it had to do with the boom in commodities that happened in the noughties and you know the oil price and very copper price going up like 10 15 times whatever it was. It was a thing, wasn't it? The BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Right, right. And people just wanted to get into emerging markets. I mean, the thing is that uh, yeah, within within Dubai and within the UAE, everything was at that point in the in the noughties and up until even the sort of early 2010s. Is, is, is that a thing? Is that how we describe them? I haven't worked it out either. The 10s, the teens. Yeah, yeah those yeah. ones. Last decade. Yeah. Early years of last decade. Everything was, was a bit kind of um, try it out and see. And very quickly, things have become very much more professionalized there. Yeah. So um, there's, there's certainly sort of less space in some ways for newcomers, but there's definitely sort of more of a market. As the world fully develops, then there will be less opportunity. I guess is always saying it because it's UK is a great example of this. We're, we're, we're what's called a highly structured market, which means that when you enter it as a new person, it's not just you've got a nice product or whatever. The relationships are very set. You know, that John's buying from Harry from Barbara, and you know that it's taken years to establish it. The competition's very high. You know, it's it's a very structured market. There's a lot of players. You have to come in the right door. You have to say the right things. You have to wait your turn. You got to build up your relationships, and eventually, you can be given a shot. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of BWB Extra. Thank you to William Laurie for joining us. A big thank you to you, dear listener. And we'll be back with a new episode next week. In the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple, follow us on Spotify, and come say hi on Instagram and Twitter at biz without bs until next time it's cheerio business without bullshit is brought to you by ori clark we've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935 to find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you whatever your needs email us at contact at oriclark.com that is contact at o-u-r-y-c-l-a-r-k or via our website. Ori Clark, you provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.